Well, our founding fathers, when they established our nation, had a, had a vision, had a vision for our nation, and it might be wrapped up in, in one word, is freedom. They were tired of the tyrannical practices of the King of England, who refused to assent to laws which were necessary for the public good, who dissolved representatives of houses when they disagreed with him, who um, endeavored to prevent the population of the states, stopped people from moving there, who, who rendered the, mater- the, the military superior to the civil power, who cut off trade to all parts of the world, who imposed taxes without consent, who deprived in many cases trial by jury, who excited many domestic insurrections. And after many peaceful efforts, our founding fathers then wrote this as they declared their independence from Britain. These are famous words. I read them for your remembrance. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness." comes from the Declaration of Independence. They basically said the king has been tyrannical and it causes us to tell you why we are declaring our independence. They envisioned a, a, a nation that would be free, a, a nation of the people, by the people, and for the people. And in their constitution, our constitution, they wrote this, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure tra- domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. And thus the American experiment began. And and, and the fundamental core of our Americanism was founded to establish our freedom, our liberty. They knew the corrupting power of a king, they'd experienced the king of England's rule upon their lives, and they knew that in order to establish a nation, there needed to be just checks and balances, executive power, executive branch, legislative branch, legislative branch, three branches of government co-accountable toward each other, that the powers would be separated, that not just one man or one institution can rule and dominate our land. Strictly speaking, of course, we're not a pure democracy. We're a representative democracy. We, we vote those who are going to represent us in our government. And we have the freedom. If we don't like what they say, we can vote them out. And if they're voted in, we have no reason to complain towards what we as a majority have voted in. 
But we can. We can elect others in their place. There's great, great news about our country. That we can have freedom. We can rule rather than just this tyrannical rule upon us. Now, as we come to our text this morning, Leviticus 25, we see God establishing a principle of freedom in the nation that He is seeking to establish. Now, the freedom that God established was not a political freedom like democracy, but it was an institutional freedom that gave everyone hope. Hope of freedom. Hope of redemption. In other words, as bad as things got, there was a time when all things would be made right. The title of my message this morning is Hope for Redemption. Hope for Redemption. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus 25. This speaks about just instituting a, a government in some regards, instituting um, the way that things would be done, how to handle land and how to have, handle um, seasons of years. And it does focus upon freedom. It's no accident that the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, on that Liberty Bell is inscribed, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto the inhabitants thereof, because our, our country is about liberty. This chapter is all about liberty. Let's begin in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired workers and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for all the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. These verses describe my first point this morning, the the Sabbath year. Every seven years, the people of Israel were to let their land lie fallow. No sowing, no planting, no pruning, no bringing in the harvest. Every seven years, the land would get its rest. Now, there was room to glean from the field, right? What grew up volunteer wise. Verse 6 says it provides food for the slaves and workers and sojourners. And verse 7 says it, it, it gives food for the cattle and wild animals, but nothing of that could be stored up in the barns for future use is the idea. Just kind of whatever, whatever grew up, they couldn't till that land. And one of the questions that come to mind at this point is, is, is how? I mean, how, how can you live a year without tending the land, especially in an agrarian society where all depends on what grows from the ground? Simple answer, God. God is how you can trust that. Remember when God provided manna from the wilderness? He provided every day. And uh, this flake-like substance would rain down from heaven every day, and it would last only for a day. And remember what happened when those tried to gather it up and, and hoard enough for tomorrow? What happened to it? It rotted, filled with worms, and it stank. But what happened on the day before the Sabbath? They were told to gather up twice as much. They gathered up twice as much, and on, what happened to that? It's fine. Now, if you think about it, that is really incredible. Manna turned rancid if you kept it overnight, except if it was Friday night. And Friday night, 
it wouldn't turn rancid. What an, an incredible food that, that they had. I don't think there's any other food like that in the history of mankind. But that's what God can do. When Israel needed food that didn't go bad, God provided it for them. And the same is the case with a Sabbath year. With a land-laying follow a year, God could easily have given a bumper crop the year before to take care of them for the next year. In fact, we're going to see that in the next point. God can easily do that for three years. Look at verse 21. We'll read this as we go. But it says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. God was going to supply for them the year of the Jubilee that we will we'll get to in a moment. But if God did that, he, he can do this every seventh year, provide a bumper crop. In fact, he did this in the day of Joseph, remember? Seven years of plenty by seven years of famine. And the seven years of plenty were sufficient to store up to provide for seven years of famine. God certainly could have given enough for one year. God can be trusted. If he commands such a thing, he will meet the requirements to keep such a command. So the simple question is here, do you, do you trust God to keep such a command in your life? Now, I, I don't think that we need to keep a Sabbath rest for our land. I've been asked that before from farmers, and I don't think so because God hasn't promised America that he'll produce a bumper crop every seven years, as he promised to Israel. But maybe the things in your life, like maybe giving, financial, do you think that if you give, God can replace that? Uh, maybe there's some uncertainty, job uncertainty in your life. Do, do you think God's able to be trusted with that? Maybe some relational difficulty. you think you can re- trust God with that? See, God called Israel to, to trust Him by resting the land every seventh year. And I just say this, all of us are in different circumstances. Is there anything that God is calling you to trust the Lord about? Can you do it? And I trust you can see this, this command here to have a Sabbath rest was total blessing. It was not a burden. I mean, think about this. Every seven years, you've got to take a year off. Who doesn't want that? Every seven years, you, you know, you, on the, the sixth year, you, you take your, your plowing instruments, your sewing instruments, and you just put them away in the barn, not going to touch them this year. How many of you kids, maybe if you mow the lawn, would be in for not mowing the lawn all year? <laughs> yeah, you would, Ruthie, huh? I know Hannah would be. She mowed it yesterday. But think about how, how, how delightful that would have been. I mean, the only thing I can compare it to is maybe an extended vacation. Right? You, you, you saved up for years, and you're going to take this vacation, say, to Texas or the Caribbean, um, or California someplace, or Hawaii, just this, this kind of dream vacation. Kind of, and you, you're anticipating, anticipating, and it would have been a time of, of great joy. Now, the sad thing is this. We have little proof that this Sabbath was ever kept by Israel. There are hints that maybe a few times it was, but... No hard proof. In fact, the only, the only time we have in the Bible is when Israel was about to enter the promised land after the exile. You remember, they were disobedient. God, God sacked them, uh, exiled them to Babylon. They're in Babylon. Afterwards, Ezra and Nehemiah come back. Nehemiah builds the wall, and, and they, they pledge this, Nehemiah 10. We will forego the crops of the seventh year, they said. So we don't even know if they kept it. They just had this pledge, a little bit like they had here in Leviticus, of a promise, this is what you should do. And yet, 
we don't know if they did or not. But maybe they were feeling the sting of having been 70 years in captivity because God said, you didn't keep my Sabbaths, therefore I'm going to force my land in Israel to keep its Sabbath for 70 years of all these Sabbaths that you have neglected. And so as Israel was off and away and they couldn't fertilize, couldn't cultivate the land, there was. God says, I'm going to keep my Sabbath rests. So maybe it was just they, they felt the sting of that, aware of their disobedience, and so they pledged. But we don't know. But we don't know. Israel failed even to trust God on this simple command. So it comes to trusting God. Are you going to be like Israel of old? Or are you going to trust Him in whatever He calls you to trust Him in? Well, there's the Sabbath year. Let's go on to the Jubilee year, my second point. And here's where we see my, my title, The Hope for Redemption. Verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound a trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each one of you shall return to his property, and each one of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you, and in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. And you may eat the produce of the field. This was a once in a lifetime celebration. Every 50 years, the land returns to its original owners. There's either be seven Sabbath years, seven years and seven years and seven years and seven years. If you know your multiplication table, that's 49 sevens. And then that 50 year is what's called here the year of the Jubilee. And so I, it, it, I'm just thinking, what, what would be a good approximation of that? I, I remember when I was a, a child, uh, in 1976, big celebration that year. Right? What did we celebrate in 1976? The bicentennial. Right? We, did, we just knew that, and that was, let's see, I was, I was nine years old back then, so I get two of these bicentennials. In 2026, there's going to be some some excitement as we celebrate 250 years. Anyone know what that name is? I don't even know what that is. Bicentennial, that's like two. I don't even know what 250 is. But you will know. I guarantee it. Come in another 11 years, we celebrate 250 years as a nation. So I'm privileged as a child to have celebrated that and then as a 59-year-old to celebrate that. But for some young bucks like Tim... When were you born? 1977. So you missed it. <laughs> we planned it. We didn't plan it. Um, after that, you only get one, unless you're robust and live to be 100. But most people would get this one year of jubilee. And this would be like, like not just, just saving up for this, this trip. This would be saving up for a trip of a lifetime. Like, like the one trip you know that you'll never, ever take again. It's it, that much excitement. It's going to come when you can, you can just anticipate this. This word jubilee comes from the Hebrew word yobel. Yobel, yobel jubilee. It's all, all right there. 
literally means a ram's horn. The idea is that when this horn is proclaimed, there is liberty and there is freedom and there is release. And in that year, the land didn't simply rest, but the ownership of the land was restored back to what it originally was apportioned to in the promised land. Now think about Moses is writing this when he's on Mount Sinai before Israel enters the land. This is assuming that Israel will enter the land. And if you remember at the, in Joshua, after they conquer the land, Joshua chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it apportions the land by lot. And these are the land, this is the land where the people of Israel would have it. And then when the Jubilee comes, wherever your family was allotted, whether you had come upon hard times and to sell that, you get to come back to the land. In this way, the people of Israel were given their freedom. In a sense, it was like a, a large do-over every 50 years. And this is God's economy. It says, we're going to keep freedom here by establishing freedom every 50 years. Level the playing field. Let's start again. It was a promise, basically, that nobody would come to take the land permanently because every 50 years it would be restored. Now think about the, the hope that you would have. Your fortunes turned sour, right? because of some reason and you need to sell your land to get some cash. But you get to this day, once in your lifetime, and you get your land back. And maybe you lost your land through catastrophe. Some hailstorm came and wiped out land, right? Just in this, this place where you were, wiped it out, and you just didn't have a crop that year and you, you didn't have enough buffer. Or, or it may be that some swarms of locusts came and ate up your crop or maybe some wasting disease killed some of your animals, it may be that you lost your land from laziness. Just plain you slept during the harvest. didn't work. And that caught up with you and you had to sell your property. Well, listen, it mattered not what your circumstances were. Come the year of the Jubilee, you get your land back. And maybe the good favor of the Lord would shine upon you once again. Maybe you learned from your mistakes. He said, I'm not going to be lazy during the harvest again. I'm going to work hard so I get that harvest so I can keep my land because I didn't like losing this land. But I just say this, there was hope. There was incredible hope. And I just say the parallels with Jesus are, are, are clear as can be. It matters not what you've done in your life, whether it's misfortunes come upon you, right? You grew up in a, in a home that didn't know the Lord, so you learn the ways of sin and learn them well. You're never, never taught the ways of God, and you're reaping some consequences from that. Or, or maybe it's that your, your father died when you were small and you grew up fatherless and directionless. Or, or maybe you, you grew up in a godly home and just flat out failed to follow the Lord. Yes, your parents taught you the ways of Christ, but you rebelled. Listen, it doesn't matter. What's true of this text here is that redemption is available. There is a hope of redemption. You just need to turn from your sin and trust Christ. And Jesus brings in this, this uh, parabolic favorable year of the Lord. Maybe you remember when Jesus preached in the synagogue at Nazareth for the first time? He took the scroll, unrolled it to Isaiah 61, what we know as Isaiah 61, but he, he unrolled it, probably did a lot of unrolling to get down there towards the back of Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there are straight allusions here to the year of the Jubilee, when God's favor would rest upon Israel again, when the poor would receive back their land, when the captives would be set free. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to, to give us freedom 
He came to redeem us. That's the idea. The hope for redemption is here in the Jubilee, that they could count on it this 50-year time. And what Israel could experience during part of this year, during this, this year, in part, we, we experience in whole. Because Jesus doesn't come and redeem us every 50 years. Jesus has redeemed us once for all. It's when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He redeems us for eternity. He brings in true freedom. And what Jesus proclaimed in the synagogue is what he he preached when he traveled abroad. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You're free in Jesus. Well, well, back to Israel. Here's how the way it worked. See, no one really bought the land. Everyone rented the land. See, they purchased a number of crops. They didn't purchase the land itself. That's what verse 13 says. In this year of Jubilee shall be for you a return to his... Each of you shall return to his own property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years until after the Jubilee. And he shall sell you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, he shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it's the number of crops that he's selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Isn't it like like the Sabbath year? This would cause Israel Israel to trust the Lord even more so. See, it's one thing for the land to, to lie dormant every seven years. To trust the Lord, we might lack, but here it's going to lie dormant for that seventh year and lie dormant for that eighth year. And then that ninth year, you're going to have to wait until the harvest comes in order order to eat. And, and, you know, he he clearly explains how he's going to bless the land. He's going to provide enough crops for the seventh year, for the Sabbath year, enough for the eighth year to carry you through even through the ninth year. He made it clear that his hand of blessing is going to be upon them. Look at verse 18. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. Then you will dwell in my land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell securely. And if you say, what shall we eat the seventh year if we may not sow or gather a crop? I will command my blessing to you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year... You'll be eating some of the old crop and you shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives. God clearly promises, I'm going to provide for you in this special way. You you, you keep your Sabbath year that seventh year, you keep this year of the Jubilee, you bring it all back together and I'm going to give you even enough to get through that ninth year until the harvest comes. And sadly, we have no historical record of Israel ever doing this. I mean, when it comes to the Sabbath year, we've got some hints that maybe it was followed on occasion, maybe some people followed it here or there, but this required national obedience, and it flat out just did not happen. That's right, but what they missed on the earth, we get in Jesus, who provides far more of a jubilee than they ever could have experienced. But this is a picture just leading us to think about the freedom that we have in Christ. Well, let's go on. There's the Jubilee. I just trust, enjoy that in Jesus. We've seen the Sabbath year, the, the year, the Jubilee year. Now, redemption of property. That's what we're going to see in 23 through 38. In this section, we're going to see the Lord telling uh, of how you can have your land again. Kind of just giving some, some details about it. The principle, though, comes why God did this in verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine and you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
See, the land that Israel would occupy was not their land. It was God's land. And Israel was to forever remember that fact, that this land is not my land. It's God's land. Psalm 24, verse 1 says that earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And it's true. The whole world is God's. We're just His stewards. And, and I'm sure in the early years of Israel's existence, they understood this, wandering for 40 years, and finally they get a, a land, they get a place, and I think early on they would have been so thankful for things. I mean, just I think about this building we have here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Four years ago we moved in here, and I remember the early days being filled with just thankfulness that all of us were. We had a building, right? No longer do we have to rent a facility. Easy could be times when we could gather for special services. We can have Bible studies here. We can reach out to the community here. We thank God for this place to use it for ministry. And I don't believe that's left us. I think enough of us carried over from those rental days. But that's not left us. But the danger is that, that it could leave us where this building becomes something that we've always had, and it becomes ours. The moment the building becomes ours, the moment we start dying as a church because we think it's ours. But see, it's not. The, The land of Israel wasn't theirs. It was God's. God put them on there as stewards to take care of it. And so I just say this. this, Rather than holding this building tight, let's hold it with an open hand to, to use it as He wills. Let's not ever become possessive of this place. Let's never forget that we are our sojourners. Right? We're backpackers. Just, just carrying along, little on our back, and soon we'll discard what we have. Let's be faithful stewards of what God has given us. There'll be a day when we transfer this building to a new generation. It'll be slowly over time, certainly, but it's not ours. Just like the land wasn't Israel's, and they need to get that. And you need to get that. Your home, your things, your stuff, it's not yours. God's, because he owns the whole earth. And God said, verse 24, the principle that governs it, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. In other words, let people redeem their land. Let them buy that, right? If, if people fell into hardship and they had to sell their land, they always had the right to buy it back. Unlike today, a real estate transaction, once it takes place, is done. Someone can't come and demand your home. Unless, of course, there's some public domain and there's going to build a road there and then there's a fair price and you can go and move. But that's the exception rather than the rule. The rule is that it's yours, it's yours. You can have it. But in Israel, those who sold the home to you could come back and purchase it, saying, I, I really want this home. And according to verse 24, allow redemption of the land. Allow buying back that land. In this way, there, there's freedom. Right? Nobody's going to able, be able to come in and take out your home. Take out your land. So you might willingly sell it like I, I'm in trouble now and I sell it and I'm into bondage. But then that year of Jubilee comes, I get it back. Or if, if I have the, the means in any way, I can, I can get it back. If ever I want to get back on that land that I, that I grew up on, I can get it back. So like, like verse 25, that's what he's explaining here. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, that is his relative, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold, right? Keep it in the family. And if a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return it to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, 
Then what he has sold to remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of the Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. Simple enough, there's hope for redemption. There's hope there. There are three, three ways, as long as you're alive, right? If you have the ability to redeem the property, you can, you can redeem it. Or if your rich uncle has the ability, he can redeem it. Or you wait till the year of the Jubilee and they can redeem it. So you can't ever lose your land. There's freedom there. Now, there were some exceptions, mostly dealing with cities. So he's talking about verse 29 here. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. But if it's not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of a land. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. That makes sense because in a, in a city that's more difficult to say rather than just say a land like farmhouses are all part of the, the land. We, we're on the farm. You can redeem back your farm but not the city because it gets too complex about what, well, which is which and how much improvements and it's all in the walled city. It's all protected. So the cities you couldn't do this in but you could do this in the land. And then he, he addresses the Levites. Verse 32, as for the cities of the Levites, which, by the way, they were given, Numbers 35 speaks about how they were given 48 cities for the Levites. That's all they were given, just the, the cities and then their remote pasture lands, just kind of right around that. For the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess because they weren't given any land. So it makes sense for them. And if any one of the Levites exercised his right of redemption, then the house was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are in their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of the pasture land belonging to the cities may not be sold, for that is a possession forever. It's just the exceptions that he's just making the rules here. And God also, <clears throat> beginning here in verse 35, instructs how to deal with the poor people. Um, deal with them. Love them as you would love yourself. Love your neighbors as you love yourself. Deal with them appropriately so they might not be taken advantage of. So they might perhaps gain some wealth to be able to redeem their, their land back again. Right, in other words, right, don't bury them so far in debt that they, they can't get out. Treat them fairly. Verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And you just even see the, the implication there is that just, just, just treat him like a sojourner, but treat him, treat him well, because you too once were slaves, and you know what that was like. Well, I tasted of this a few weeks ago. Um, my dealing with uh, PayPal credit, and quite frankly, I was pretty angry. I didn't yell, okay, but I was I was pretty angry at what PayPal credit did to me, and so I'm telling you about PayPal credit. So you can, in fact, I told them that I will tell people about PayPal credit and what happened to me. In recent months, Avon paid. Um, you know, we got PayPal. We, we we share our PayPal. It's linked to our our bank, of course. And uh, she purchased a couple things on, online, about $160 worth. And um, like, okay, I didn't see how she did that, but apparently she didn't pay it with PayPal. She paid it with PayPal credit. Now, did you know those are different things? I didn't know they're different things. Um, both of them use the same password. 
They have the same name. They look like they're the same, by where they're not the same. Anyway, she didn't realize what she did. She, she paid with PayPal credit rather than with, with PayPal. But no worries, right? I, I just assume it's the way PayPal works, right? Automatically deducts, goes into my, my credit card, my, my debit card, and my checking account, and kind of just pays through, and it's not really a problem. Um, that's not the case with PayPal credit. PayPal credit is like a credit card that you need to go to that website in order to pay off that credit card. So I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I, of all our credit cards, we always pay off our balance, except there are some times when you know, administratively we just miss this. And, but we, we, don't, we don't pay interest on our credit cards. We, just, we don't. It's, it's foolish. But anyway, it's not that I was unwilling to pay off the balances on the, the PayPal credit card. I just didn't even know that I had this. So, so PayPal credit emails me a couple times, quite a few times in, in some regards. But I, I ignored them because I have had some PayPal emails before that, you know, you hover your mouse right over that thing and it's not taking you to paypal.com. It's going to another place okay, that looks like a PayPal email. In fact, these PayPal credit emails were very plain Jane. They didn't at all like have the flower and stuff, flower, the flourish and frill like you'd think would be PayPal. And so I, I, in fact, even they came in a different folder. My email, I just didn't even ignore, didn't even look at them. All right, so, so then... Um, in fact, I even looked up just even uh, yesterday an email I received from PayPal. It says, don't reply to this email. We're unable to reply to inquiries, right? Go to the website. Um, because PayPal has had so many problems with these you know, scams from Africa and, and stuff. Well, lo and behold, I get a statement in the mail that says I'm behind on my payment. Okay, so check this out. I'm, I'm a few months behind on my payment because I haven't been checking my emails, which are normally fraudulent, is what fraud filled. And so I, I was... I was a few months behind in paying. I was charged 19.99% at this $160. I think it's a ripoff. But what's worse is I was charged either $25 or $35 each month that I was late as well. So you start thinking about that. That's a, a couple months late, all this interest compiling up. And my bill, I can't remember what exactly it was, but it was in the neighborhood of $300 for just three months of not paying my, my credit card, which I didn't even know. I thought PayPal was going to take care of it. So PayPal then, um, I called PayPal and kind of dealt with the thing, um, angry, but I, uh, it was, call was monitored, and I think I dealt respectfully with people there. But they then asked for a reply. Well, how did it go? And here's, I, I write some of it. This is, this is what I said. I said, this is, in the all caps, highway robbery. I said, really, something is dreadfully wrong with this. If this business were local, I'd go to the Better Business Bureau or write a letter to the editor or something to shame this incredibly unfair practice, especially with the difference in business name between PayPal and PayPal credit, a difference which I knew nothing until my call a few days ago. Now, to their credit, they reduced. They said, well, what, what do you want? I said, well, remove all of, my, all of my penalty charges. And they cut it down a little bit. And I said, no, remove them all. And then they cut it down a little bit more, and I just... Ready just to get done with it, so I paid like about a twenty dollar fine. I, I settled it, but even that allowed me still not to be a satisfied customer, right? So it allows me to to put out all this stuff. But here, here's the interesting thing: is that I think that this is the experience of many poor people who put on credit rather than doing some things in in another way, 
And uh, I guess I was shocked because it doesn't happen to us because we pay off our credit cards, but I'm sure there are people maybe who don't pay off their credit cards. It's easy to rack up a 300% interest rate. You start, start getting these things, and um, it's easy to, to do that. But it's the American businesses preying upon those who can't afford it. Why do you think credit cards are so easy and free to get out there? It's because they're stiff in so many people. But see, God prohibited such a thing in Israel I mean, that, that was the whole point. Verse 35, your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a soldier, and he shall live with you. Take no interest or profit. Fear God that your brother may live beside you. Don't lend him at interest. Don't, just help him. That's happening in America. See, we've, we're losing our freedom, so vote the right people in, right? Well, let's look at my last point this morning. We've got the Sabbath year, the, the Jubilee year. All these are giving hope. Redemption of property that's giving hope. But now we got the redemption of people, which really brings us to Jesus because we picture what Christ did on the cross because he's not just redeeming things, he's redeeming people. I want to read some of this. And, and there's some things in here that's kind of shocking. This is surprising of how, uh, I, just, I alert you to it beforehand, is that God's people couldn't be slaves, but they could purchase other people from other nations to be slaves that could pass on to their posterity. How that all works, I'm not exactly sure. When we think of slavery in America, we think of Africa and all of the abuses there and rightly are, are offended at it. But even according to biblical definition, you see that you should not even treat slaves like we did in America. Shame on us. Though we may think we're freed from slavery, we're, we're not. According to biblical definition, there are plenty of slaves in America. Because Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. If you're borrowing money, you're a slave to somebody. Now, that slavery might be, as in the Bible, voluntary. Yes, I understand the, 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 the contractual observation uh, obligations here and so I gladly enter into that slavery but you still as a slave you gotta you gotta pay that off well let's let's read here we go verse 39 if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you you shall not make him serve as a slave that's an Israelite he shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner he shall serve with you until the year of the jubilee And then he shall go out from you and he and his children with you and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers because everything would have been uh, restored at that point. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. But as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, You may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you, and you may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you in their clans that are with you and who have been born in your land, that they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as possession forever. You may make them slaves to them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule over one another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger sojourner with you or a member of your stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative of his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer 
from the year when he has sold himself until the year of the Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for the redemption some of his sale price. If there's a remainder but a few years until the year of the Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these men and his children with them, he shall be released in the year of the Jubilee, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. There's a couple things. I just want to close my message here this morning as we just go through there. First of all, you see that God cares for his people. God doesn't want his people to be slaves. In fact, he made that impossible. So you're part of God's, God's economy. There's some hope of freedom that you can have. And, and there, there is some, some parallel there with Jesus, that there is some, some blessing that comes for being in Christ, being a, a follower of Jesus. His hand of protection will be upon you in general. Now, why he allows others to be slaves, I'm not exactly sure. We, we see the, the condemnation of of the harsh um, dealing with slaves. Like in verse 43, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Or in verse 46, you shall not rule over one another ruthlessly. And uh, there, there's, there's another place where it even says, I can't quite, quite get it here. But you're not to rule over them ruthlessly. You're supposed to deal with them kindly and gently. And another thing, it's interesting here that slaves could grow rich. So the slavery we think about is, is you can't earn any income. But when you think about slavery, I think the best parallel in America is to think military. Oftentimes, is if people voluntarily subject themselves to the military because they know the benefits that are on the other side. They know the dangers, certainly, but they get the benefits on the other side. It's voluntary slavery. It's like I, I volunteer myself to be slave to this person. In return, I get these benefits. I get a house. I get a home. He cares for my children. He feeds my children. I get an education, whatever. And... and that's kind of how slavery was. But God cares for his people. They can't become slaves. You see, his whole redemption, even if you are a slave, there's still a vision for a way to be redeemed out of that if you're one of God's people. There's hope for redemption. And also God provides for the redemption of his people. I mean, certainly you just think about that language coming over into the New Testament about how he has redeemed us. Ephesians 1 verse 7, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Right? The songs we sang today, I will glory in my Redeemer, who has redeemed me. He's taken me out. And picture this. You're, you, you, you've become poor because you've not managed or you've had some difficulties and you sell yourself and now you're a slave and your brother comes along and redeems you. And so that now you're free. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus. We were slaves to our sin. And in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from our sin. Romans 8, verse 2. We've been set free from our sin because He has redeemed us. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's in Jesus that He he redeems us. Or Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, see, Christ came to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. He has redeemed us. He's brought us back just like 
they were to be redeemed in the Old Testament. And in his time and in his way, that's why Galatians 4, right, when the fullness of time came, that's when God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. When the time came, and for the Israelites, it was, it was either the year of the Jubilee or sooner if they had the, had the funds and had the means. But for us, of course, Christ has redeemed us. And I just say, does that make an impact in your life? The redemption of Jesus that he has done in your life? Because you were a slave, but he's redeemed you and, and set you free. And he set you free not to do what you want, but to do what you want, which is true freedom. Not to do what you want, but to do what you want. Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, our founding fathers said that we should be free to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that comes only through Jesus Christ. Let's find our happiness and our life and our liberty in him. So let's pray. Oh, Father, take these words and use them into our hearts. I pray that just today we would reflect much upon what it means to be free. God, that Christ Jesus has come. He is indeed our, our Sabbath rest. God, that in Him we can rest. God, He is the one who has proclaimed the favorable year of the Lord. God, this jubilee has come in Jesus. God, He has dealt with us kindly and has not oppressed us when we were poor but instead has come and paid that redemption price which we owed. God, we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And he paid a, a debt which he didn't owe. And so, God, we thank you for Christ. And I, and I pray you'd continue through Leviticus to see, show us the riches that are here that lead us to him of these Old Testament pictures that God established, how God established his government. God, so as to ensure that there would always be this hope for redemption, that the people of Israel would be longing for that. And I, I would pray, God, that as we have been redeemed through the blood of Christ, I pray, as, as Jesus said, um, God, to continue to persevere until the end. Look, look up, because your redemption draws nigh. And so, Father, we look forward to that time when you redeem us ultimately at your return. And we long for Jesus to come. And we pray in his name. Amen.